All right. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning, and uh, I would say turn to 1 Thessalonians, because we've been doing a book study through 1 Thessalonians. But I'm not going to ask you to do that. I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of James. We are continuing our study through 1 Thessalonians, and as you recall, uh, we had kind of taken a temporary stop at the instructions of the Apostle Paul to pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing is what we were told in, in 1 Thessalonians 5, 17. And uh, you may remember, uh, again, uh, some of the things that we had discussed uh, leading up to that. Paul had been uh, uh, addressing those Thessalonican believers. You remember he had to leave abruptly after the uh, folks in the marketplace had gathered and found their way to the house church at Jason's home where the believers gathered to meet and worship and and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. They had been doing so for probably near three weeks, maybe longer. And uh, the day that the mob showed up at their house, Paul, Timothy, Silas were not there. Thank you, Lord. Uh, They drug down Jason, a couple of the others that were in the house church, down to the city rulers, uh, the Politarchs was what they were known as. And um, upon their being released, Paul and Timothy, Silas, they ended up going to Berea. And of course, when the mob found out they were over in Berea, they went to Berea, started trouble over there, trying to get a hold of these guys, because they did not like this gospel message. And so they end up splitting up, and Paul goes and eventually writes... Uh, from Corinth, and uh, that's where this letter of 1 Thessalonians is being written from. Paul sent Timothy back. He's concerned. He wants to know that these folks are, are okay, and so Timothy gives him a report back that things are going good, and so Paul's writing this letter as a means of encouragement, as a means of instruction. And so, 1 Thessalonians... Uh, We find him, again, we've talked about this in previous messages. Uh, In this specific context, he's given us some instructions on pastors, their responsibilities, sheep to their uh, under-shepherd, the pastor, sheep to sheep. We've talked about that, the responsibility of you believers to one another. And now we're looking at a list of some things that we all have sheep to the ultimate shepherd, our responsibilities in response to a holy God. And so he's going through some things. One of the things he's told us, and this is where we've camped out, pray without ceasing. So I want us to eventually find a way to James chapter 5. I know you folks are anxious. You're like, wait, 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 wait. James chapter 5, and we're going to be looking in verses 13 and following. But before we get there, I got a little email this week, and... uh, I thought this was very appropriate for our study. And so, uh, Brother Gentry Jr., I appreciate it. I want to share some of these uh, holy humor. Some unans- uh, This one's called Unanswered Prayers. Uh, listen to this. The, the preacher's five-year-old daughter noticed that her father always paused and bowed his head for a moment before starting his sermon. One day, she asked him why. Well, honey, he began, proud that his daughter was so observant to to his message. 
He said, well, uh, I'm, I'm asking the Lord to help me preach a sermon. The little girl looked at him and said, how come he doesn't answer it, she asked. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, preach a good sermon. Well, uh, maybe God will answer it today. How about this? This one says, say a prayer. Little Johnny and his family were having Sunday dinner at his grandmother's house. Everyone was seated around the table as the food was being served when little Johnny received his plate. He started eating right away. Johnny, please wait until we say our prayer, said his mother. I don't need to, the boy replied. Of course you do, Johnny, his mother insisted. We always say a prayer before eating at our house. That's at our house, Johnny explained. But this is Grandma's house, and she knows how to cook. (laughs) (laughs) Amen to that, right? (laughs) So anyways, uh, prayer. Prayer. Uh, I appreciated the song. Randall knows that's, that's one of those songs that, you know how there's certain songs just really strike a chord in your heart. That song God used uh, when I was a brand new believer. Just, I mean, you talk about wet behind the ears. I was brand new in my faith. And that was one of the first songs that I ever heard on the radio that really ministered to me spiritually. And, of course, for me, at the time, age 25, coming out of a deep life of sin, it struck a chord because I knew I was only there by the grace of God and by the prayers of the saints. Because, see, I had family members. I I, um, had folks who, no doubt, had prayed for me for years. And some of you, you're a product of praying family members, praying friends, praying churches. And we thank God for that. And, And let's be real. Quite frankly, where the church struggles, where I struggle as an individual, is in my prayer life. And if I had to guess, that's where you struggle. And so we've been talking about this three-part series on praying, and we've talked about praying earnestly, continuously. We've we've talked about praying regularly. And today I want to talk about praying fervently. What does it mean to pray fervently? And so that's why we find ourselves over in the book of James today. But as I study this, I find a lot of similarities that are addressed in this letter that we find that Paul has written in the Thessalonian letter. So I want to give you some background as to what's happening in the book of James so that we can kind of understand. And I want to point out some of these similarities that I find in these two letters. But I also pray that we'll all be challenged today in the area of prayer. And I want to give us the opportunity to respond to what God has already commanded us to do in the Word of God. But I want to uh, challenge us this morning to step forward and be willing to do battle in prayer. Take a look, if you would, in the book of James, chapter 5. Let me give you some background of what's happening. This comes from uh, John MacArthur. He writes the following. The first thing I want us to do is to think about the context in which this passage is written. James is writing this letter to an assembly of Jews. They are called, in verse 1, those who were scattered abroad. They are a church. 
an assembly of Jews who named the name of Christ. They've been scattered out of Palestine. They've been scattered out of Jerusalem by the persecutions of Acts 7 and 8. You may remember the stoning of Stephen. Listen, when we study the Bible, guys, and we want to be students of the Bible, I don't want you to uh, repeat just because a pastor has said it or because someone you heard that sounded good and they could kick up a dust storm and make you shout that that's absolutely dogmatically true. You know that we always encourage folks here that you need to search the Scriptures. You need to be a student. They went to Berea. Remember, the Bereans were noble because they didn't take what the Apostle Paul, Timothy, Silas, these guys were teaching. They, they heard it, they received it, but then they went back and they daily studied to see if it was true. And you have the same responsibility. Don't take what's being said up here as absolute dogmatic truth. You have a responsibility before a holy God to get in the Word of God for yourself to study it. And so here's what's happening. Here we find that in the context, and that's one of the things I am learning over again. I'm taking, you know, you heard the advertisement E412 about this class. I'm currently in a an hermeneutics class for my summer class. And, um, and it's online and it is just tough. Even though I've had it once, it's tough. Y'all pray for me. I got an exam this evening. So as I'm going through this, one of the things though that has been refreshing to my Bible study again is the importance of historical context. You see, you understand the book of James a lot better when you get an idea of what is going on in the setting. It's called historical culture. It's the historical cultural context. And so I want to know, what's going on in James' day? What's the background? What is happening? What has, you know, we know that the Holy Spirit has moved James to write this letter, but he's using a specific person, a specific personality, in a specific time period. And so what is happening? Because if I can understand what's going on there in the culture and the time in which this is written, then I can make proper biblical application from the principles and the, and the truths into today's culture. I can't just look at this and say, oh, well, you know, this says this here, therefore, this is what it means here. Not necessarily. Uh, you know, Moses struck the rock and a bunch of water came out. Well, maybe if I go out in my yard and strike the rock today, water will come out. No, that's not going to happen. You see, you're misapplying some of the important truths that Scripture's teaching. Now, there are some biblical applications that we learn. There's some truths that is taught there that apply to us today. One of them is be obedient. Be obedient to what God has said. So that's an example. But let's get back on track. What is the background of James? Well, the persecution has arisen. It's called the dispersion or, or the diaspora. And here is a group of Jews living in an assembly, naming the name of Christ somewhere in the Mediterranean area. We don't know where, but there would have been plenty of places they could locate in the Mediterranean re region, in Asia Minor, or, or, or some such place. Because they are Jews, to start with, and most certainly because they are Christians, and exalt the name of Christ, they find hostility. And so they're a situation of, uh, uh, under a situation of tremendous stress. They're under trials. Uh, chapter 1 of James opens up telling them that they are to learn how to be patient in their trials. You know, there's another example. The Bible says 
Uh, you know, if any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. Was well, that a blanket check? Is that a blank check for you to just ask for wisdom? What's the context? It's in regards to trials. The context, when he says, if any man lacks, uh, lacks wisdom, let him ask. The context is there's trials, there's, tribu- there's suffering persecution. And so God's word is saying, hey, you're facing some trials. You're not sure how to handle this stressful situation, this persecution that you're up against. Ask. God will give you the wisdom you need to see your way through it. So here we find He says that um, they're under temptations, they're severe temptations, they're under persecution, severe persecution. And James is writing to them in the midst of stress and hostility and persecutions and temptations, trials that the world is bringing to bear on them to exhort them to stay faithful. That's why James is writing to this group of believers. Some of them need to examine themselves to to see if they're even saved. That's one of the reasons he's writing. Because some of these folks that are gathered there, they may not truly be born-again believers. They need to examine themselves. The ones who are genuinely Christians need to remain faithful in a very difficult situation. They are experiencing great trouble. They're being persecuted for what they believe. The pressure is coming at them from outside and from inside. Persecution all around. That's why this is being written. So with that in mind, let's look at today's text. James 5, 13 and following. Is anyone among you suffering? Is anyone among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful or merry? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruits. Context. This is one of those passages that has been butchered. You go in some churches, and you're going to hear, oh, this passage is about anointing. You've got to get some oil and do some kind of Crazy stuff on somebody's head. You go in some churches and they're going to tell you, hey, that passage, that passage right there, that's, that's about um, uh, healing. It's all about healing. That's what that passage is about. And there's so many misinterpretations of this portion of Scripture. This passage is not about those things per se. This passage is about prayer. It's about prayer. And so, again, understanding what is going on in this time period, understanding what's going on with the biblical audience in which it was written to, helps us to understand today and make biblical proper interpretation and application to where we are.
This is called rightly dividing the word of truth. So let's take a look at the text. Now, uh, verse 13 talks about the believer, the individual. And uh, these are some of those similarities I find in that last part of 1 Thessalonians that I see here today. He's addressing the believer. Then in verse 14 and 15, he talks about the elders or the pastors. And and then uh, those are the leaders of the church. Verse 16, he talks about the whole congregation to one another. So he basically encompasses the whole church in its prayer life and also speaks about some of the amazing and wonderful features of prayer that benefit the life of the believer. So I don't want you to miss this. This is a text that has to do with prayer. I like MacArthur's four-point outline on this. I won't preach four points, but I'm going to try to... I wanted to give you this because as you go back in your own study and you look at this text, I think you see this outline that clearly unfolds from the text. Number one, prayer and comfort. Number two, prayer and restoration. Number three, prayer and fellowship. And number four, prayer and power. I'll run through those again if you're writing those down. Prayer and comfort. Prayer and restoration. Prayer and fellowship. Prayer and power. The key word being prayer. Church, we need to get back to prayer. That's our source of power. And we are weak in our faith, and we are weak as Christians. We are warned from the battles that we're facing, the trials, the tribulations, the temptations, and the same answer that James gives to his people is the same answer that we need to hear today. Prayer. Prayer is our answer. So, notice. Notice verse 13. Is anyone among you... Suffering. Now think about it. These people have been dispersed. Some of them have been physically beaten for their faith. Some of them emotionally are torn. Their families disown them. They don't want anything to do with them because they are named in the name of Christ. These are Jews. This congregation as a whole is Jewish believers. Can you imagine... It's the same equivalent today if you were in a Middle Eastern country and you were raised Muslim and all of a sudden you announced you're Christian. Your family is going to disown you. That is some serious stress. Just imagine those that love you the most, those that you're the closest to right now in your life. Because you took a stand for truth, they, uh, they pushed you out. They disown, they disown you. They don't want nothing to do with you. You're dead to them. They spit upon you. They ridicule, they mock, they hurt you physically. That's the kind of stuff these folks were facing. So James says, is any, anyone among you suffering? Are you hurting? Do you have pains? I ask you this morning, any of you hurting? Now maybe you've not endured some physical suffering for your faith. But maybe some of you have really endured some spiritual battles. Maybe you've endured some suffering emotionally in regards to your faith. So, uh, James says here, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. There's your answer. You need comfort? You need comfort? Pray. 
pray. Verse 14, is anyone among you? Oh, by the way, let me give you a little, in case you missed the meaning of what pray means there, that Greek word, it means a continual pleading. A continual pleading. You see, sometimes we go to uh, God in prayer with a, as a, a genie mentality. We make our wishes. That's not prayer. It's continually pleading to God for comfort in regards to this suffering, relief from the suffering. That's a basic truth. Continually pleading. Verse 13 also talks about comfort. You know, you're in deep spiritual pain. Your soul's broken. Your soul uh, is suffering. Pray. But notice what else he says. Is anyone among you... He says, uh, is anyone cheerful? Is anyone cheerful? Let them sing psalms. What is that? Hey, so you're, you're on the mountaintop right now. Life's good. You're spiritually where you need to be. Things seem to, It's just one of those mountaintop experiences. Rejoicing in the Lord. Then sing psalms. Rejoice. Which, by the way, is an attitude of prayer, is it not? When I am worshiping God, when I am thankful in heart and spirit, when it's bubbling over and I'm saying, praise you, Lord, thank you, God, that is an attitude of prayer. And if that's where you are, Praise the Lord. Sing some songs to Jesus. Praise God. Prayer. So, he says here, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Now, this is where we miss it. This is where our English translation falls a little short. And I don't care which English translation you have, they all fall short in this word because the word sick is not the word that it should be according to the Greek text. Uh, You say, wait a minute, what do you mean, Pastor? Well, let's let's take a closer look at this word. Again, this is where understanding the cultural context, the historical cultural context makes a difference. The Greek verb is asthenio. It's the root verb. It's always been translated. Typically, uh, the translations have always said sick. As a result of that, everybody assumes that he's talking about sickness. But what does it refer to? Listen to these uh, thoughts here. There are several terms in the New Testament that can refer to sickness or disease. The term here is a very, very important one. Asthenio may refer to sickness. Yes, it may. It may, and it is used, uh, so used in the New Testament, but all Greek lexicons agree that its primary meaning, its primary meaning is to be weak, to be feeble. To be impotent. It's the word weak. In fact, in the epistles and in Acts, it's used uh, most of the time for that kind of weakness. Romans 4, 19 
In Romans 4, uh, 14, 1 and 2, Romans 14, 21, it's used for being weak in the faith. In 1 Corinthians, this word is used in 8, 9, and it's in verse 11 and 12 of the same chapter. It's used of spiritual weakness. In Romans 5, 6, it's used of spiritual weakness. The impotence uh, of the unsaved in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty one, it's used to refer to the weakness of personality. What's the point of this? The word, the majority of the time, and if you check, check your lexicons and do a word study, the word should have been interpreted weak. Weakness. Is any among you weak? Wait a minute. Now see again, if I'm understanding the context of the time period, is anyone suffering? Is anyone weak? What are they suffering from? What are they weak from? The diaspora, the dispersion. The Jews have been scattered. They're being persecuted. They're being severely punished. You talk about weakening yourself in your belief, being, becoming weak in your faith. Don't trials do that to you? I mean, when life crushes in on you, don't you sometimes start to get a little bit unsure about your stand and your beliefs? And, and this is where the rubber meets the road. This is when the pressure comes. This is when the heat's turned up. And so that's what James is saying. He's saying, hey, is, is, anyone, is anyone among you weak? Look over in Second uh, Corinthians for a second. Second Corinthians twelve. Whew, boy, I'm gonna have to speed it up today. Second Corinthians twelve, verse ten. Second Corinthians twelve, verse ten. If you notice there in that text, this same word, the same words used there, this translated sick in James is translated here. Paul's talking about his persecutions. He's talking about his difficulties. Similar context. And he says that he is a thorn in the flesh, which he prayed God would take away. He never did. God didn't remove it. God says in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is perfected in weakness. There's the word. Weakness. Again, This is, this is, look, you go to any country. You go to any country and you try to speak the language and there are some words that do not translate into that language. I'm going to have to use two or three words to explain the one word over here. And this is what happens. It doesn't change any truth here, folks. Don't misunderstand what's being said. When you go from the Greek language, which by the way, that's what the New Testament was written in, Okay, it wasn't written in Spanish, it wasn't written in English. It was written in Greek. So when you go from Greek into English, sometimes in the translations, you, you, you've got a word here, but you're going to need two or three words to try and describe it here. And, and sometimes it's, it's not what it needs to be. Again, does it change the truth? No, because what's the truth of the passage? Pray! Are you weak or are you sick? Pray! That's the truth of the passage. The answer's still the same. Whether you've got a physical sickness or whether you're just spiritually weak. doesn't change the meaning of the truth of the context. The answer's the same. But notice what he says here. He says, My grace is sufficient. 
for you. My power is perfected in weakness. Then in verse 10, he uses the same word, asthenio. Therefore, I am well content in another form. I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. In other words, the same word used here for the weaknesses that come in human flesh As a result of the difficulties of life, it is a term then that mostly in the epistles and in the book of Acts has to do with weaknesses and mostly with spiritual weaknesses. So, what about, what about this next? Everybody back in James. Everybody jump back over in James. We want to stay in our context. So, If I look here in 14, is anyone among you sick? Is anyone among you weak? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let him call for the pastors. There again, there's one of them situations. The words, the Greek words that are used for pastors, uh, you've got uh, uh, presbyteros, which is elder. You've got episkopos. You've got poimen. These are words that basically either mean elders, pastor, bishop. It's kind of like if I say to you, Commander-in-chief. You know I'm talking about the president. If I use the word president, I'm talking about commander-in-chief. These words are, are interchangeable. Here he's using the word elders. He's referring to the pastors. Is anyone among you weak? Let him call for the pastor. Now why would James say that? Why does James want you to call for the pastor when, when you're weak? Well, again, here's the point. Let's take a look. Calling for the pastor. The idea is the pastor should be spiritually mature. And someone who is spiritually mature should be able to come alongside someone who's spiritually weak to help them in the midst of their struggle. And that's a truth that doesn't just keep itself to the pastor, it, it, uh, and you'll see here, it's a requirement for all of us who are growing in our faith, those of us who are maturing in our faith, we should always be seeking to come alongside those who are having those moments of weakness, those moments of temptations, those moments of suffering, and we need to come alongside them to encourage them, to help them. So, what does it say? Um... He goes on, he says that those pastors... Now, this is again where we lose a lot of people. Let them call for the pastor of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So I'm supposed to go down there to the hospital with my little bottle of oil, and I'm supposed to shake it up real good. Oh, ooh, I didn't use virgin olive oil. I better go back and get some. Um, and I bring that down there, and I do some type of ceremonial thing. And a lot of... Folks, they've taken it to mean this. Now, I, I, I'm going to throw out a few ideas here. And, and again, you be the Berean. What about this anoint with oil? The verb is a lefo. It means to rub or oil. The best way to translate this would be rubbing him with oil in the name of the Lord. It doesn't mean dotting his forehead. It means rubbing. Literally. means to crush over. It's used of an outward anointing of the body. In, the case with, in this case, with olive oil. 
Elegion, which is olive oil. That's the word. And literally, the text says, after having oiled him, oil him? I need some oiling. I'm the tin man. Is that what? The literal translation means to oil him. Now, it could be ceremonial. It could be medicinal. One of the things, when the sheep would come back into the fold, the shepherd would have his staff. And a lot of times he would stop the sheep. And he would inspect the sheep because he's been out. He's been out in the, in the wild here. He's been out in the, in, in the field. And he wants to check him over to make sure there's no wounds. And if there was wounds, if there was injuries, if there was places, he would often rub oil into the wound to help bring healing. And he'd lift his staff and the, and the sheep would go in and the next one would come and he would stop them. And he would inspect the look and see, was there any, any wounds, any injury? If there was, he would use oil to administer. Now, contextually speaking, someone's made their way back into the gathering the, the, of Jewish believers and they were pushed out of town and pelted with rocks and they come in and they're beaten and bruised. This was a common use in the time period. So, yes, it's likely that it is medicinal, that it was used to rub onto the wounds, and it could have literally physically been wounds. That's an option. And again, we don't know that unless we understand the cultural context of the passage. You try and rub some oil on somebody today, you're going to be at a masseuse parlor, and I don't recommend turning the church into a masseuse parlor. I'm just saying. The best way to translate this is, as it says, after having oiled them. This is the ministry of restoration. That's the point. Restoration. The wounded, the broken, the pained, the weak, the weary, the exhausted. Soldiers who were out there fighting the battle come into the commanders, the shepherds, their pastors, and those pastors come alongside, get on their knees and pray with spiritual strength that they have in behalf of this dear saint. In compassion, they reach out to strengthen, to stimulate, to bind up the brokenhearted, and even minister to the wounds if there be physical wounds in the human body. That's what they would have done in this time. It's the ministry of love. It's the ministry of care. And somehow we've lost that. Notice verse 15, and prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. Hmm. And the prayer of those. Implied, the prayer of those spiritually strong. The godly men. Those that were called to that ministry. By the way, what, is, what am I as a pastor supposed to be called to? Fixing leaks and changing light bulbs? Was that my ministry I was called to? What does the Scripture say? I have been called to prayer and ministry of the Word. Now you see, when we understand this, the context in the day, that was an important ministry. 
And I think probably, I'm just guessing on this one, but it makes a lot of sense. I think it's rooted in an educational guess, but take it for what it is, my opinion. I think this is probably why it eventually led in the Catholic Church to confession to a man. Because if the common practice of the early apostles was that they went to the pastors and when they were struggling with sin or weakness or just simply persecutions, so that the pastor who's supposed to be stronger and spiritually more mature in the faith is able to come alongside them and pray with them, because he's going to get into the confession. Maybe so. But let's get back to the Word of God. Let's get back to the text. Notice... Uh, It's the ministry of restoration. He says that those who are spiritually strong, when they pray, offered in faith will restore the one, and the prayer of the faith will save the sick. Now, text has always said sick. This is not the word for sick. This has never been the word for sick. This word here is komnata. It's from komno. It means to be weary. That's what the word means, to be weary. So again, when I understand, when I do my homework, when I look into the cultural context, now the James passage gets cleared up because it can't mean all the things that all these other churches are teaching. We've got to look. So what is it saying? Here's what he's saying. Now again, when I understand what the words mean, I understand the context. The passage just comes alive. The prayer of faith will save the weary. And the Lord will raise him up. You see what's happening. When that weak, battled Christian comes in and I'm able to kneel beside him, number one, the fact that he's come to you shows confession. Because man typically wants to hide his sin. Man typically wants to, to uh, he, he's a bit ashamed. Now, again, this may not all be always, you know, sin. He's going to address that in a second. But it's also just those who are warned from living the Christian life. They're doing right. There, there is no sin in them. But they're still, they're coming in and, and, there's, and there's struggles. And this pastor gets alongside of them and begins to pray with them because they're weary and gives them God's truth which is able to build them up. It strengthens them because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And they didn't have text to read, you know, to take home. They didn't have a Bible like you got, three or four of them in your house. So that was the point here. They come in. But this word, it, it means to be weary. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. This word right here is only used one other time in the New Testament. And it's in Hebrews 12.3. And in Hebrews 12.3, it's properly translated. The word weary. So, when we look at James 5, you see it. The prayer offered in faith by those godly men will restore the one who's weary and has lost heart. Spiritual restoration. Spiritual strength. The Lord will raise him up. This is a ministry of restoration. Because is it the prayer of the pastor? That's not what does it. Absolutely not. It's the object of my prayer. The Heavenly Father, Almighty God, He's the one who's able. 
The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is able to restore you. But sometimes we need somebody to look up to in the walk in our faith to help encourage us, don't we? I was taught early on you should always have two types. You should have three types of people in your life. You should always have an Apostle Paul in your life, a mentor, someone you look up to spiritually. You should have that person in your life that you can call, that you can confide in, that you know will come alongside and pray with you when you need those times. You should also have um, a Barnabas, someone to walk with you, someone who, was, who, who is an encouragement, a friend in the Lord, a brother, a sister in Christ. And you should always have a Timothy, someone that you, like Paul, pouring into the life of someone who's younger in the faith. We need that. We all need that. Let me try and move forward quick. Um, it, notice now, this is when it gets into the, the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Again, because there's this attitude of repentance. If I'm coming to, to the pastor, and it's because of sin, and I'm willing to take this to the throne of grace and seek that forgiveness, yes, you will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another. And pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. The word restore is the word sozo. It's the word that means to save, to deliver, to rescue. And here it means to restore. It it means to preserve, to make whole in the Gospels. Your faith has made you whole. You've heard that term. It's the same word, but it doesn't have to do with physical sickness. The prayer of faith will restore the weary. The prayer of faith will restore the weary. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. Verse 15, if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven him. You see, this proves for sure that he's not talking about disease. MacArthur says this, He's not talking about disease because not all disease is related to sin. But if in the case that your weariness and your spiritual defeat is a result of sin, in that environment of crying out to God and confessing your needs, He'll forgive you. You'll experience that forgiveness. Then James goes on uh, and and he says this. He says... um, Notice, confess your trespasses one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. As some of yours may have that word uh, there in that text, it says, therefore. And that's a transition statement. Because. Why? Why does he say therefore? He's just said if you're weak, you need to get alongside someone spiritually strong and let them pray for you. And if your heart is sincere and you're there because you want God to reach out and restore you, then He'll do it. So, if the prayers of a righteous man can assist that weakness in your life, therefore, you ought to be confessing your sins to one another and praying for one another that you may be made whole. You see, this was, again, a common practice amongst believers. But, oh, today, small group, me confess my sins to another? Oh. 
So instead, many Christians wear a mask. Oh, my life's good. Everything's fine. Oh, it's peachy. And internally, they're carrying the weight of the world. We need people to come alongside us. We need to confess to one another. I'm struggling. I am weak from the battle. I am weary. Pray with me. Will you pray with me? Maybe you need to find somebody to meet with weekly just to pray with you that you can open your heart up, that you can be transparent, that you can share these struggles. Notice this is to the congregation. You know, don't wait till you get to the bottom. You need mutual honest confession to one another. He moves on in. He begins to speak of uh, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man, which again, if you are walking in faith, if you are lining up under the truth of God's Word, if you're seeking to live a life that's honoring to God, then you have strength in your life. Not strength of your own, but strength through the Lord because of your obedience. And you're able to encourage those who face battles that you've already gone through. You're able to pour into their heart and into their life to bring encouragement because you've walked that road. You've, you've overcome because of the grace of God and, and He has given you answers through s- uh, certain situations. That's why when you find in Corinthians that you're able to minister to someone in the way in which you were ministered to when you went through it. You've been made more whole as a result and you're able to help others through that as well. But now he turns to Elijah, and he says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and three years and six months. What in the world is he talking about rain for? What does rain have to do with anything? And sometimes we don't get this whole picture of what's going on here in this text. Again, he's still speaking of rain. But notice, now that we've looked at the cultural context, now that we've looked at the root words, we've looked at the true Greek meaning of this text, notice what begins to unfold before our eyes, the truth of this passage of Scripture. But he prayed earnestly. The Greek phrase there means he prayed with prayer. He prayed with prayer. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Uh, That's uh, the way the English Standard Version renders it. Now, let me tell you something. Nice illustration. What does it mean? I'll close with this. If he'd been talking about physical healing, this is a strange way to illustrate it. If he wanted to illustrate physical healing, he could have used a number of illustrations on physical healing. That would have made sense. But he didn't. But if he wanted to illustrate how God sends down refreshing rain on a dry, parched land, this is a perfect illustration. And guess what? The battle gets you weary. The battle gets you wore out. 
The sins that so easily beset you put you in a desert place. And sometimes spiritually, we are drained, we are dry, we are weak, and we are weary, and we need refreshing from the Spirit of God. I need rain on my soul. That's why he uses this illustration. Because he gives this righteous man, Elijah... who's interceding on behalf of what's needed to bring refreshing. And he knows who can bring it. And so when a weary soul, a dry and torn, hurting person comes, and I'm able to kneel beside them, and I'm saying, look, you've got to turn to the Lord. You've got to focus on the Lord. We've got to take this to the Lord in prayer because He can bring refreshment. He can bring some refreshing to your soul. He's been talking about the weary, the weak, the exhausted, parched soul of the wounded warrior. And he needs the outpouring of the refreshing rain of the blessing of God. It's a perfect illustration. God sent the rain in response of the prayers of a powerful, righteous man. So in response to the powerful, righteous prayers of men today, does he send the restoring blessing, joy, refreshment to the parched, dry, weary, weak, exhausted, struggling believer who needs so desperately a refreshing touch from heaven? There's our ministry of prayer. That's what prayer is supposed to be. It's not a wish list. It's fervently seeking the face of God, the will of God for my life, for your life, to strengthen us in the battle, that we can stand. Prayers must be red hot. It is the fervent prayer that is effectual and that availeth coldness of spirit hinders praying. Prayer cannot live in a wintry atmosphere. Chilly surroundings freeze out petitioning and dry up the springs of supplication. It takes fire to make prayers go. Warmth of soul creates an atmosphere favorable to prayer because it is favorable to fervency. By flame... Prayer ascends to heaven, yet fire is not fuss, nor heat noise. Heat is intensity, something that glows and burns. Heaven is a mighty poor market for ice. God wants warm-hearted servants. The Holy Spirit comes as a fire to dwell in us. We are to be baptized with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Fervency and warmth of soul. A phlegmatic temperament is abhorrent to vital experience. If our religion does not set us on fire, it is because we have frozen hearts. God dwells in a flame. The Holy Ghost descends in fire to be absorbed in God's will, to be so greatly in earnest about doing it and that the whole being takes fire is the qualifying condition of the man who would engage in effectual prayer. Ian Bounds, the necessity of prayer. We're weak. Because we do not have power in prayer. Our hearts have gone cold. And that's why we don't desire the things of God, the souls of man, to encourage one another to be strengthened in the fight. And we need fire from heaven. Some conclusions about prayer. I've got seven quick run through and we're done. These are from Norman Geisler. Number one, it's not the power of our faith that counts. Hear me on this one. If you tuned out, tune in. We're done here. Stay with me. 
It is not the power of our faith that counts. It is the power of the object of our faith that counts in prayer. It is not our belief in God that is most important. It is the God in whom we believe that is most important in prayer. It is not the greatness of our faith, but the greatness of our God that makes prayer effective. Prayer is not the power of our faith being released through God. It is the power of our God being released through our faith. Prayer is not a means by which we get our will done in heaven. It is a means by which God gets His will done on earth. Prayer is not the way we overcome divine reluctance. It is a means by which God utilizes our willingness. And the last, God always answers the prayer of faith in unconditional promises, unconditionally. But conditional promises, conditionally. Now, if some of you want to copy that, I'll be glad to let you get a copy. I know that's too much to write. Um, in fact, I could send it out, and I may just send it out via email this week to encourage you. Church, this passage is about prayer. And what we need more right now than anything in this church is prayer. Will you join alongside of your fellow believers in prayer? On your way out, there's a sheet. And the application of this morning's lesson is to 30 days of prayer. 30 days of prayer. And on here is a list of prayer needs. Not Aunt Bessie's toe, though we want to pray for Aunt Bessie's toe. This is some of the things that I believe, according to Scripture, God would have us pray for. The first one is souls to be saved. And that's at the heart of God. One a day, one a day, for 30 days. We're going to kick this off, Lord willing, Friday with our 24-hour prayer chain. We've not done that in over a year. Many of you have participated before in our 24-hour prayer chain. You know how it works. Here's the way it works. And by the way, if you want to participate, you don't have to be a member to participate in this. you just got to be willing to pray. And you got to be willing for somebody to call you to say, hey, your turn to pray. And you've got to be willing to call somebody and say, hey, your turn to pray. There's a sign-up sheet. Pick a time slot. It's a 30-minute time slot. And you promise to get along with God in your prayer closet, seek God's face for 30 minutes in prayer. And when you're done, you let the next person know. We'll start at Friday. It'll end Saturday. And then day one is Friday. Day two is Saturday. Day one is Friday, day two is Saturday. And from that point, you just begin to pray daily. You don't have to pray 30 minutes a day after that. It's just that one time slot. We can talk about prayer all day long, but it's time we do something about it. Amen? So I invite you to be a part of the 30-day prayer challenge. Thank you for allowing me to take the extra time. I know E412 messed up. I had to get on to him for cutting into my time. Just kidding. 
should have put on there, uh, pray for Dallas that we don't stress him out with trying to get him to do stuff in the middle of things when we don't, anyway. <laughs> let's, uh, let's turn our hearts to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you. Thank you for prayer. We can come to our Heavenly Father. and When we're weak, we're weary, we're hurting, there's struggles, and we can bring these to you. Lord, we need you. We too often try to do things in our own power, in our own strength, and Lord, that's not our answer. And even for those of us who who know and understand that, we still neglect prayer. We We don't pray continuously, regularly, and fervently like we should. Lord, forgive us. Please create within us a heart of prayer. Lord, I pray for this 24-hour prayer chain, this 30-day prayer challenge. It wouldn't be just a gimmick. That it's not just something that people will do and check a box and, hey, I'm done. But Lord, I pray that it would be the spark. This would be the match that lights the flame that builds a raging fire in the heart of every believer, and that we would begin to earnestly and fervently seek your face, to do your will, to return to the prayer ministry of the saints, that we might help those who are weary and weak. Lord, thank you for the time this morning in your word and for the patience of these folks. I know we get conditioned that somehow the Holy Spirit stops working at 12, Lord, we will be in your presence for eternity. And I know sometimes folks may joke, it feels like that we're in eternity with some of these sermons. But Lord, help us. Help us not to have that attitude. Help us instead to see the fruit of being together with believers and in your presence in the study of your word. Mature us. Strengthen us. That we might do your will. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning, you're visiting, we'd encourage you to fill out a visitor card. If you haven't done so, please do so. And um, if you want to talk with someone or if you need prayer, um, I'm going to stay here. I'm not going to go to the back. I'll be in the front. Maybe you just want somebody to pray with you over a special need. Then as the folks make their way out, if you would, just come, and I'll be glad to, to kneel and we'll pray together. Okay? Appreciate your time, and um, I'm going to ask Brother Jimmy Carr, would you dismiss us in prayer?